0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC, from breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look. The Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Doctors at Surrey Memorial have met now with Adrian Dix to address dangerous conditions and understaffing within their departments. Dangerous conditions and understaffing, their words. The hospital's birthing unit is being described as bursting at the seams, but the minister did not commit any additional funding for an expanded maternity centre. This in a very fast-growing area. Well, Dr. Claudine Stornis-Bliss is an obstetrician and gynecologist at Surrey Memorial. She's been behind some of these concerns expressed in the last couple of weeks. Just one person speaking out. She joins us now. First question, Dr. How would you describe the meeting with Adrian Dix?
1: The meeting was a, a mixed feeling response, I would say. Um, we were successful in establishing an acknowledgement that we are in a crisis uh, because this is important to recognize. You can't fix a problem if you don't acknowledge your problem. We were also successful in opening a line of communication between our uh, department leaders and the Ministry of Health, there was a bit of interest in talking about improving access to the operating room, Um, but really, at the end of the day, what we were looking for was a firm commitment to uh, publicly make women's health a priority, specifically in Fraser Health, where it's been the most underfunded, and a commitment to invest in capital and redevelopment of Sir Memorial, particularly the family And we, despite multiple requests, we were not able to secure that commitment.
0: Why not? What's going on here? Is there an excuse, a reason, a justification? What are you hearing from the minister himself?
1: Um, You know, I'm, I'm not a politician. I know nothing about politics. But I'm going to assume that is not a decision he can make on the spot. Um... And so I'm assuming there will be more talks. However, the feeling I was left with was that despite my planned long career, I don't think I will see a redevelopment during my career.
0: That's frustrating. That's scary.
1: Very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: What is it that has to be understood right now?
1: Uh, it's, it's actually a really, really, really simple thing that t- to understand, in my opinion. Our unit is far too small for what we do. There, we have done the reshuffling of resources. We have done the Band-Aids and the putting out the fires. There is nothing else to do but to build. That is the only thing we can do for our unit in particular. So, you know, the, the longer we wait... The longer we have the potential of this situation to worsen. I think it's really important. It's really important for the public to know this, right? That it's going to take 10 years. So for the next 10 years for sure, it's not going to be magically better. But we need to start today. So everybody needs to pick up, you know, pick up the phone, call your MLA. If you've had a bad story, tell it. Tell it so that people understand what is actually going on. And we, there's force in the numbers, so it's important for everybody to speak
0: up. Here's what I don't understand. Uh, when we talk about high-growth areas, we talk about areas where people want to move to, to start families. You're an OBGYN, working with an OBGYN team. It seems common sense to me that you want to make sure that team has the resources for growth in the area they're serving. Is that something that's mentioned as maybe unique to an area like Surrey?
1: I don't think it's unique to Surrey. I think it's 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 a problem everywhere where there's rapid growth, right? And Surrey Memorial or the, the Surrey community actually is growing rapidly as the fastest growing community. Um, if you look across the country, it's the same thing. There seems to be, um maybe a misunderstanding or, or, or maybe a bit of a laissez-faire attitude towards infrastructure with communities that are fastly growing we see it all the time with schools we, you know schools are built and the first year they're open there's a portable on the school well maybe that could have been planned a bit better it's the same it's the same thing if we're going to build and build and build and people are going to move into Surrey and surrounding communities we need to have the infrastructure for that but And this particular infrastructure is handled by the Ministry of Health. So it's time to respond, really.
0: Ten years is a long time to wait, if that's what we're talking about for a rebuild or a rethink on the system to bring it up to a level we want. Uh, I know the Ministry will point out to things like a new hospital in Cloverdale that will be coming online. Is that going to help at all?
1: It's not going to help us for... um, for women's health at all. There's there's no plans to have obstetrics and gynecology there, nor should they there be, because, um, you know, we have enough small community hospitals that do labor and delivery, and they face particular challenges where, uh, you know, they can't do high-risk pregnancies, they can't deliver early. You know, I'm not going to go into the details, but they are very restricted in the services they can provide. And so the sort of the overflow goes to Surrey. So having another center like that is not going to help whatsoever. So it's okay that there's no plans for that there, but it also means it's really, it doesn't help us. There's day surgeries, cancer center. It's great. It's not taking care of any of our problems.
0: So what do you do now? What's the next step?
1: Um, You know, the next step is to continue to fight. We are uh, in the process of writing a letter back to Minister Dix asking for a meeting within the next 30 days with plans to establish deliverables and KPIs. Um, And I think that, you know, I think we can continue to fight the fight and I think making sure that we don't continue to have meetings that are just there for show and to appease everybody uh, is important. And, I, and we've made that clear. We're going to come to a meeting as long as there's a plan. Otherwise, we're not interested.
2: So no.
1: That's, that's our next step. And so hopefully we can be successful in doing that. But that also means there's 30 days for the public to continue to ask questions, to continue to tell their stories, to continue to lobby their MLAs,
0: Those stories are important. Uh, They're also frightening when we do hear the stories because it comes down to things like lives, children, babies. Uh, Very disturbing. Does it seem like the minister has any empathy when he listens to some of those stories or the recounts? Did he touch on that from a heart perspective in talking with you? We
1: touched on the, the difficulty... Of providing appropriate care um, we touched on why we do what we do and why it's extremely difficult to do right now um, we didn't touch particularly on that newborn death but you know if if a baby dying is not enough to take action then what will
0: is there strength and unity that you're finding with the others in voicing the same sorts of concerns right across the board
1: Absolutely, everybody is banding together. There is no like fight between. Oh, it's more important when we get money for emergency department. It's more important when we get it for surgery. It's what there's none of that. Everybody is supportive of each other. Everybody understands the frustrations of each department, and there's a bit of a renewed <clears throat> um, renewed energy between the departments right now that I'm finding. Anyways, um, you know the. Everybody's encouraged that some people are speaking up and I would expect more letters in the future.
0: If the letters are ignored or continue to be ignored, is it time for a change in leadership, say with Fraser Health first and then maybe the health minister?
1: Um, I really don't want to mix politics and medicine. Um, It's not what I'm here to do. If that's the you know that's up to the different the the different parties to talk about what their platforms are, and then up to the public to decide what to vote on. Um, in terms of Fraser Health leadership, I don't think so. I think that um, Fraser Health can only do so much, right? And and has been helpful somewhat in reorganizing. Uh, the family birthing unit resources, for example, and helping us juggle those resources. But the solution really is money. And that lump, big sum of money, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, has to come from the government. So that's that's where the the answer is. And so you can decide what you, you can make with that, as you will.
0: Is there anything that you're seeing here that gives you some sort of optimism?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, I have not seen uh, doctors and nurses banding together like this and speaking up in my career. Um, you know, it's easy to talk in the hallways about how terrible it is and then just kind of move on, but I, I'm happy to see people are actually speaking up. So that, you know, that shows you how dire the situation is, but it also shows that we still have a fight in us. I'm also happy to see that there has been at least a response from the Ministry of Health in terms of meeting with us. As much as that may have been to appease us, um, it's still an open of communication that we are going to take advantage of.
0: Doctor, I know you're extremely busy, and that's uh, busy on the front lines and busy standing up for what you believe in. Thanks so much for spending time with us and sharing. You know, talking about challenges and solutions in the medical system, one of the things that we have been moving toward is a new way to handle medical records. Of course, there has been a push to do it more efficiently using electronic medical records, but with that comes a mix of systems and some more complications and some more challenges, incomplete and fragmented data, Uh, When you have electronic medical records, there can often be a lack of information that can be shared between different uh, health authorities or different provinces, different uh, providers using different systems. And guess what? Yeah, those systems sometimes don't communicate effectively with each other, and that results in barriers to information sharing and a coordination of care is something that is a real issue and has been detailed in depth by Andrew McLeod, writing in The Tie-E about Canada's broken electronic medical records model. Andrew joins us now. Good morning, Andrew. Yeah, hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me on and thanks for your interest. Well, and thanks for talking with us because I think a lot of people really don't understand the back end of some of the information that they have about them that's on file and, you know, it sounds like it's a good idea in theory, and it is, but there are some challenges, aren't there?
3: Yeah, well, even in theory, I mean, there, there are different arguments. Um, but, yeah, huge challenges. I, I think in this day and age, you know, it's 2023, you have the feeling that Google knows, you know, every website you've ever been to and that Apple knows every, everywhere you've been in the last however many years. Uh, I think a lot of us have the assumption that our health records – are all in one place and easy to access, and you know we 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 just assume these days that 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 data is collected and and used in a way that's that's useful uh, for us. Um, but that's not the case, as as I found out uh, working on this piece, and and it came out of a a couple things. One was a complaint from a doctor about uh, uh, what it was like trying to change clinics and and how hard it was to get the the records for, for his patients from from the vendor he was using. Uh, and the other was a technician who got in touch with me uh, just to share their frustrations. You know, just the, the, the daily, you know, their their job is, is bringing records from one system into another. Uh, and he was able to show me, I mean, a lot of it's like technical details, but, but just, just the, the, the junk that would come through with the records, you know, like forms that got filled in yeah. with nonsense, uh, records that got duplicated, you know, things that should be, a, a you know, sort of one record that... that 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 got duplicated into to multiple records, uh, you know, all of it needing to be looked at and, and clicked on by by the doctor, and all of it sort of you know sucking up time because because that's another piece of it is is the amount of time that the healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, uh, others others in the system, uh, end up dealing with with electronic medical records. The uh, president of the doctors of BC told me that, that the estimate is like thirty to forty percent of the day that that's spent dealing dealing with the EMR that could be spent. You know, dealing with patients at a time when when you know a million people don't have a family doctor in the province.
0: Well, here's the thing, Andrew. That's always surprised me. Is it seems to me like the football is being kicked down the field, and we're really dealing with a problem where you've had doctors' offices, and I see this with walking clinics, for example, that still have paper files. It's 2023. And uh, some have been very slow in converting over. Is that part of what you found? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a piece of it.
3: I mean, historically, it all would have been paper, and and a lot of legislation is is based on a time when it was on paper. Uh, Doctors through their college are required to keep records for patients for 16 years, and and it doesn't specify how, how they have to be. They can be on paper, um, so yeah, there are stories of people who who want, when they want to move records, you know, have to digitize them, and put them into PDFs, or or they're taking paper files. Um, yeah, so some of it's historic, but but remember, we've had like 20 years now of, of saying this is a priority. I think it was 2004. BC said it as a priority. Uh, there was a thing, well, it still exists, Canada Health Infoway, but like hundreds hundreds of millions of dollars were put into it. Uh, sort of, I guess, you know, 2007, 2008-ish, somewhere in there. Like B- BC's share was was I think a couple hundred million dollars, and they they were spending money like that across the country. Um, as part of that, uh, I think the main thing they did was was get doctors to to get onto some kind of system. So 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 now like ninety three percent of doctors' offices are are on some kind of electronic medical record. So yeah, seven percent are still on paper, I guess. But 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 compared to what it would have been fifteen years ago, that's that's a lot. But the thing is. Nobody had the foresight to say okay we 're going to do it all on you know one system so that they can all talk to each other it 's all going to be centralized, which is what some places did. Estonia did that uh, they They have one system that you can access from you know a hospital a doctor 's office home uh, we don 't uh, so 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 we had people adopt something and then what happened was there were multiple vendors uh, and multiple systems, and it 's been consolidated a little bit but 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 at this point there are at least 15 different systems that people use, uh, including like some, some have sort of designed their, their own. Some are open source, so they customize them. Um, and, and the one that's the most popular, like even the very most popular one, is, is, is only used by 17%. So it's totally fragmented. Uh, hospitals have their own systems. Health authorities have their own systems. Um, Dr. Gregane gave me an example of, of a cancer clinic that's in a hospital where, where the clinic is on one system and the hospital is, is on the health authority system, which is a different system. So the, the, a patient in the cancer clinic in that hospital, their records aren't shared between the two systems. Uh, you, you know, just things as basic as that. Uh, and, and, and I think, to me, it's a it's a matter of leadership. You know, like somebody needs to say, uh, look, we're going to have one system. This is what's going to be. Uh, you know, maybe they do that in consultation with, with the vendors, with uh, with the people who use it. The U.S. has done that. Uh, The Biden administration ordered that that everybody would use the the, what they call the fire uh, system, uh, and and they're working towards that. So it is doable, but it takes takes leadership and it takes some courage, uh, and it takes bringing all the different parties who are involved together to to do that, I think.
0: Well, it's a real issue and a real priority is uh, needed in there. Uh, And you mentioned 20 years. That's a long time to get the act together, but it's still not together. 93%, yeah, that's great. 7% still outstanding. But even with the 93%, as you outline, uh, they're not talking to each other. So many different systems in play. There's so much more we could talk about that. But uh, thanks for the... uh, for sharing that with us. And of course, if you want to find out more information, the article is Canada's broken electronic medicals record model or records model. It's in the TAI. Andrew McLeod, thanks for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. This is just not going away. It's the fight between the B.C. government now and the current mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke. The provincial government now wants the Surrey City Council to make a decision on whether to keep the Surrey RCMP or transition to the standalone Surrey Police Service. Well, Mayor Brenda Locke and most of the council has, they has, have preferred, and I'm going to use that carefully, that is in the past, they have preferred to retain the Surrey RCMP. Well, the B.C. government wants them to stick to the original plan of transitioning to a new police service. So yesterday, Public Service Minister Mike Farnworth called on a lock in the council to schedule another vote on the matter. Because remember, back in the fall, they had that one vote. And at that time, everyone was, while well, the majority was in favor of retaining the Surrey RCMP Well, the minister wants another vote on the matter because there is a new report out and signed that non-disclosure agreement so they could see the report and get access to it to make a decision once again. This just never seems to die. Well, Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis is joining us now. Boy, you've signed uh, the non-disclosure agreement. You've seen the report. What do you make of this latest move by the Solicitor General? Is he just frustrated? What's going on here?
2: Well, Minister Farnworth, I think, is very frustrated uh, with us not making a decision, as are the residents of Surrey. This has just gone on far too long. Uh, we received the uh, NDA request over a week ago, uh, and I certainly signed it right away, as did several of my colleagues, because we want to make a decision based on facts. It's always better to have the information and know, and then make an informed decision.
0: So what's in that uh, report? Disclose it to us.
2: Well, I can't disclose it uh, <laughs> because he you signed the NDA. Absolutely, and but what I can tell you is there's some very valuable information in that report, and I think it's incumbent on all of council and the mayor to read the report and then make a decision.
0: Well, here's the argument I would be making if I was on the other side myself, and uh, I could see Brenda Locke's point on this you know what, Uh, that's fine, but if I am to take a look at a report, and I'm not speaking for her, I'm speaking for me if I was mayor, which I'm not, thank goodness, but if I was a mayor, I would say uh, I want to be open and frank with the information in that report and give all the details to those in Surrey, and I can't do that because I signed an NDA. Well, you've signed the NDA. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I think that's completely inaccurate. Uh, there's certain information that's highly sensitive. We're talking about public safety. Do we want, for an example, you know, um, for the criminal element to know where in British Columbia we have deficiencies in, in policing, where, where where we could be short members or whatever it might be, the kind of intelligence that uh, comes into these kinds of reports oftentimes could affect public safety if the wrong people had the wrong information. Uh, Everyone is entitled to look at the redacted report, and there's lots of great information in there. But we do, from time to time, on many instances, have to uh, hold back certain information for the public safety uh, perspective.
0: So that is a reality and uh the majority of uh well not majority but uh, yourself and uh, others on council have seen the report because they signed it. Is there something in there that has changed your mind about uh your decision or well I've got to, I'm assuming something here has your uh, has your mind changed does it continue to you know be the same position?
2: Well I think it's best for all of us to read the report and make an informed decision. You know, um, you can read these reports three, four, five times and always glean something else from them. And when we're talking about a decision of this magnitude to go and make a decision ill-informed without all of the facts on the table, it's just wrong. Better to, you know, as I say, to read it. um, And I would hope that... um, uh, other councillors and the mayor will get on it quickly because, as the mayor has mentioned, uh, each month that we delay this decision, it's costing the taxpayers in Surrey $8 million, and that's a lot of money, and it, you know, we need to get on with it and make a decision.
0: We need to get on with it and make a decision. Some people might argue, yeah, but we were elected and we made the decision. That was clear. So it all comes down to this report. Is the report the thing that needs to be taken into consideration, the sole thing in making a decision? This new report.
2: Well, I would first of all, you know, like to say that um, when people voted for the current mayor, she won by less than a thousand votes. People did not vote solely for her to keep the RCMP or, or not to have the Surrey Police Service. Uh, you know, people vote for many reasons, and when you have that slim of a majority, I guess the. Other argument could be made that McCallum almost got in uh, and he supported Surrey Police Service. I've been calling for a referendum since 2018 on this very issue because it's a huge issue. And um, when you cast a a ballot uh, on Election Day, you're not voting for a single issue. If I had my way back in 2018, again, uh, when I was uh, reelected, we would have done a referendum. It's been such a hugely divisive issue in Surrey. Uh, and, you know, we need to uh, to resolve it once and for all. It's dividing the community. And I think a referendum would have put this whole thing to bed long ago. But unfortunately, you know, the, both the provincial government and the municipal government de- didn't see it that way.
0: Uh, Councillor Linda Annis in Syria, I'm going to put uh, this to you. And I think it's almost safe to say that Brenda Locke is not going to change her mind at this point. Uh, Some of the other people on council that also believe in what she has said and have been elected under her slate are not going to change their mind and will hold firm. So, Mike Farnworth can still, we know his recommendation, he wants the transition to continue. Uh, We know that Surrey taxpayers, many, want an answer, a final resolution. And of course, members of the RCMP detachment and members of the Surrey Police Service also want some sort of certainty. What's going to happen? How is this going to unfold, do you think?
2: Well, I hope it unfolds very, very soon, for starters. um, It's been going on, as I said earlier, far too long. Uh, we need to make a decision on it and then move forward. And we need to find a way to bring the community back together uh, because it has been such a divisive issue. And quite frankly, you know, I think at this point in time, most of the residents of Surrey just want us to get something done uh, and get focused on other issues. There's so many things that we need to be focusing on in Surrey. We've got 1,500 people moving here each and every month. Uh, Since I've been elected, that equates to about 50,000 people. And we need to be building uh, rec centers. We need to be um, advocating for more schools, better health care, and all those things in Surrey. But yet we're just focused on this one issue.
0: Okay, is the provincial government going to step in and revisit the Police Act and take a look at this and say, you know what, you've had your time, now it's our time, and we're going to overpower the mayor? Do you think that's a possibility?
2: Well, anything I think is on the table at this point in time, but to answer that question, that would be a great question for Minister Farnworth.
0: Great question, but what do you think? Do you think that is possible?
2: I think anything's possible at this point in time. You know, he has said he needs us to make a decision. There's a huge concern on his part. You know, there's 1,500 shortages of RCMP members in the province. There's a concern for public safety, and as the minister in charge of public safety, he needs to make sure that residents in British Columbia are kept as safe as possible. And so ultimately, if we can't make a decision, he's going to have to consider his options.
0: Linda Annis, you're frustrated, aren't you?
2: I am very frustrated. This has been going on far too long. We've spent so much money uh, to date on the transition, I feel badly for the members, both for the Surrey Police Service and the RCMP. They're just left in limbo, and this isn't the way to uh, treat people that are taking care of our public safety and that are doing such a fine job of it. I feel very badly about that.
0: Memo from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth to Mayor Brenda Locke in Surrey. Time to make a decision. Let's get down to it. What do you want? Surrey Police Service or the RCMP? Yeah, you made a decision back in the fall, but you've now got the report. Let's go right to our calls. We also have Councillor Linda Annis with us. But in Vancouver, Elmer, what do you make of what's happening, Elmer, in Surrey?
4: Well, it seems to me that the RCMP
3: policing of municipalities like Surrey is based on the model of You know, back when uh, RCMP Sergeant Preston of the Yukon patrolled the wilds of the Yukon alone on his horse Rex with his dog, King. Yeah. For example, uh, the RCMP still allocates one officer patrol car, uh, even in cities like Surrey. Well, most cities, large cities and municipalities that have their own police force allocate uh, two
5: officers.
0: Well, the bigger cities do. And Elmer, I'm just going to pick up on that one point because it has been mentioned in the past. Uh, Linda Annis, uh, what about that? Is it time to do those uh, dual cars? And would we see that with the Surrey Police Service?
2: Well, I I believe, uh, and it would be a good question for the chief, but I do believe that the plans are to have uh, uh, two members in some of the jurisdictions, you know, where... um, Uh, where required, where public safety uh, may be a little bit more um, of a concern. So I I do believe that is part of the policing model.
0: It seems to be the case in some of the bigger cities. By the way, it's not just all municipal forces that have two police officers. Uh, There are many, many smaller forces, uh, uh, even your Deltas and uh, Port Moody and ones as far out as Nelson, which have city police that only have one member uh in surrey cory what's on your mind
6: yeah the government like uh farmworth should have just had the guts to just
3: say sorry you go on with surrey because personally i mean i live in surrey i'm, I'm for the rcmp but back when mccallum won he had a really that was his main thing changing the police force and he won that initial election quite handily then Brenda won it, but I don't think Brenda won it for the mandate of changing it back to the RCP. I think it was more of a I don't like Doug type vote. She barely won. And so, I mean, my feeling is in Surrey, most people just want to move on. Don't you know, keep going it's back interesting.
6: Yeah,
0: Corey. It's interesting you say that because I always thought that this would be coming out of uh, Mike Farnworth, uh, kicking it back to Surrey as much as possible to stay away from the issue and making a recommendation. I was not surprised by that at all. Uh, It's a safer move, and it's one that uh, can basically say, Hey, Surrey, your problem. You deal with it. Appreciate the phone call. Also in Surrey, Gurdeep. Good morning. What's on your mind?
6: morning, Bruce, and to Councillor Ennis. She does an amazing job on council, and we're so lucky to have her. I think the politics is overpowering the reason here. Um, Mayor Locke and her slate uh, already have the redacted reports from the RCMP. It is the RCMP and probably the SPS that do not want their numbers and reports that they submitted to the province released publicly, and that is the reason why Uh, there's an NDA, and this council, as other councils, Bruce, routinely have in-camera meetings. They are done for a very specific reason, because there's information that is, you know, private or, you know, proprietary that cannot be, you know, shared with the public, so there's a reason behind it, but I think the voting calculus for the mayor is also changing, and one of the reasons why she's reluctant is that one of her councillors, who's an ex-RCMP member and has two kids in the RCMP, is in a... Very obvious conflict, and will not have we will not be able to vote, so he 'll have to recuse and the math doesn 't work for her, so that is one possible reason possibly maybe uh
0: counsellor annis can comment yeah uh, counsellor annis uh, Linda annis, what do you think
2: well i would agree agree completely with uh, what your caller is saying, and you know i i won 't uh, place judgment uh, on a fellow counselor it is uh, going before our ethics commissioner, but um, Uh, I do think that um, we have to be open and transparent with everything that we do at City Hall. And with respect to the closed council meetings, he's absolutely right. Uh, We do discuss a lot of very sensitive information in in closed uh, for the same reason that we've been asked to sign the NDA because it is sensitive confidential information.
0: I appreciate the phone call from Gurdeep, and for all the phone calls, did not get to all of them. Linda Annis, uh, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, too.
2: My pleasure as always, Bruce.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Generation Z. Remember, those are the ones born between the mid to late 1990s all the way up to the early 2010s. Well, they believe that they need an annual income of just over $100,000 for a comfortable life, disp- despite the average pay, of course, for them being about forty-five grand a year. A recent abacus poll shows the different generations have, in fact, some very different perceptions of the income required for that so-called comfortable life. Let's go through some of them. Boomers, Boomers estimate that life would be about oh, 64000 Gen X expects about $85,000. Millennials projected $87,000. And reality check, perhaps? Gen Z anticipates $100,000 or more. Generation Z faces financial challenges in today's economy, they will point out, like housing costs, high mortgage rates and rising rental costs like the other generations don't face those. But uh, reality check or not, the person writing about this is Rob Carrick in the Globe and Mail. Rob, you've done a great job of taking a look at this, and it makes me want to kick a Gen Z. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, reality check, uh, is this realistic? What are you finding out? Yeah, it's realistic. In fact, I would argue that they're underselling the cost
4: of, of a comfortable life for themselves. You know, the um, $100,000, you know, was a great... Uh, It was a great threshold for a strong income about 10, 20 years ago. It's still a very, very good income, much higher than the median now, but it doesn't get you as much as it used to. And if you're young and you live in a big city where most of the country's population is, and you make that much money, I question whether you're going to be able to afford your rent and save for a home down payment anytime soon. So when these young people are saying what they need to live comfortably, I think they're thinking a house. And if you want to own a house, I think in a big city, 100K, you, you probably will get one, but it'll, take a while. And I don't know if the older generation would get
0: that. Well, fair enough. And actually to qualify for a mortgage, uh, and it's not even big cities anymore. $100,000 is uh, on the low side for most houses right across the country, isn't it?
4: Yeah, for sure. You know, you'd need two partners making that. That's that's the uh, the bottom line here, you know. I mean, the 100,000 is really sort of an abstract idea. You know, we're asking people to pull a number out of their heads. What what do I need? But I think it's super interesting how the number just goes up and up and up from every generation and uh, the interpretation of that is that the more you have, the less you think you need to, as an income because you've already acquired these big assets and the younger you are, you think I don't not only need to afford to own the assets I need to afford to buy them. So the whole down payment saving thing disappears once you get past the Gen Z and millennial age.
0: Yeah, I find this interesting, uh, boomers and Gen X, like uh, the boomers estimating $64,000, I guess. Maybe they're saying that's for them, not for us.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's kind of a laugh. I, I mean, I know lots of boomers in 60, the uh, 64,000 a year. I don't think that would uh, do it for their lifestyle. So I think maybe they're underselling it a bit. But, you know, it, it's just the feeling they have that I've acquired a lot of the things I'm going to want in life. And I figure I could get by a little less income and or, or a modest income. And then, you know, the Gen Xers are a little bit, they haven't quite got everything they want, so they need more. And then you get millennials and Gen Z who have nothing and they're just starting out. And they're thinking, wow, it's going to take so much to get me where I want to go. That's why they're just pulling the six-figure number out of their head in the, in the Gen Z bracket.
0: Yeah, but still it is a six-figure number, realistic or not, and what they're making when they start out is about forty-five grand. That's a big yeah. difference. Are they optimistic about the economy or are they uh, kind of pessimistic?
4: I think, I think they're sour. You know, and I think housing is a big part of it. I think they're starting to think that, you know, we had uh, – <clears throat> we had this huge run-up on housing during the pandemic, as interest rates were down, and the Bank of Canada raised rates, and so prices fell. But the, uh, the higher mortgage rates sort of offset all the benefit of lower, uh, lower prices. And now, if you look at what's happening in Vancouver, and Toronto, and Calgary, other cities, the housing market's starting to take off again, and they're starting to wonder: if you're in your twenties, will I ever be able to afford to own a house in one of the big cities where most of the jobs and uh, most of the jobs are and where my family and friends are and all that stuff. And uh, they're starting to think, no, I don't think I ever will. And they're not happy about it.
0: You know, I'm a Gen Xer and uh, at the very old, old side of the Gen X, but a Gen Xer. And for years, I wondered about home ownership, was lucky enough to uh, etch out uh, a mortgage. But I I, I think that if uh, today's circumstances were such when I was starting out in Vancouver, I wouldn't be able to afford it. So I look to the other side of it, and that's renting. But we're hearing so many stories that even when it comes to renting, this new generation, Generation Z, coming into the job market, they can't afford rent. You know, normally,
4: renting would be sort of a refuge from the high uh, expensive housing market. So you could say, I'm going to rent, and you have to rent for longer than I want, but I'll save money and I'll end up with a down payment. But rents are up about 20% from their pandemic lows. It's about $350 a month on average across the country. And
0: <clears throat>
4: rent increases are are consistently coming in at high single or double digits. And so you can't really save much when you rent anymore. You know there used to be this rule that you should save thirty percent. You should spend thirty percent of your income on your uh, on your rent, no more than thirty percent. But a lot of people are doing forty and fifty percent. So if you're doing that, by the time you add in the cost of uh, running your household, groceries, you have a little uh, a little leisure uh, you pay for. There's not really much left over for the home down payment fund. So maybe it's going to take you ten years or fifteen years. Uh, that that could be the time horizon a lot
0: of uh, Gen Zs are looking at. And when you talk about that, Rob, you also uh, mentioned and wrote about this, uh, delaying or not having children. That's going to be uh, a bit of a difference, isn't it?
4: I think it's already a difference. You know, I, I do a podcast for the Golden world. It's called Stress Test. It's designed for uh, Gen Z and millennials. And we just did an episode recently on... Um, young adults who are deciding not to have kids. And we have no shortage of of people who are willing to talk to us about the situation. They're just sizing up the economy. Some are adding global warming into this climate change. Um, But there's an economic sense that they don't know if they can pull off getting a house and having kids and incurring daycare costs and all the other costs. And they're deciding... Uh, they, they, at this point in their lives, they're not going to do it. They may change their minds, but um, you, you don't have to go far to find young people saying they're they're opting out of uh, out of having kids,
0: opting out of not having kids. Uh, what about uh, living with others and sharing when it comes to rent or even mortgages? Are we seeing more of a desire? I shouldn't say desire, a necessity to split some of that cost?
4: Totally, uh, we we absolutely are. I mean, there's there are. House sharing arrangements that are that you're seeing, you know, multi-generational families, uh, uh, friends are, are buying houses together. I'm hearing lots of stories about uh, people in their later 20s and early 30s, people who thought they were long done with having roommates are looking for roommates because their rent's so expensive and they can't get ahead. And so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think sharing is—it's uh, a terrible solution because you should be past that by the time you're, uh, you know, you're in the in the working world. You've got a career and you've got a good income and all that stuff. But apparently, you—you uh, you know, rents are so expensive now that even people who are doing just fine for themselves are finding themselves overloaded. So yeah, sharing is a sharing is a new a new thing. In fact, I'm got a column on the go about uh, a group that helps uh, uh, single women who are retired find roommates because they are a group who can't afford their rent anymore.
0: Rob, I'm looking forward to that column. Always enjoy your read in the Globe and Mail. Thanks so much for spending time with us as we continue to explore explore some of these challenges facing Generation Z going forward.
4: Great chat. Thanks. Thanks, and have a good weekend.
0: What's in the name? Well, for the North Shore Cricket Club... Perhaps a million bucks. Yeah, there's a controversy brewing and it's in the cricket world and it's being played out on the North Shore. The North Shore Cricket Club, the real club, one of the oldest in the province, is now asking the courts to order a newer club to stop using its name and to award it damages of about a million bucks. It alleges the imposter club's misrepresentation and attempt to pass itself off as the North Shore Cricket Club twice has caused irreparable harm and damages, all this coming out in a B.C. Supreme Court filing. So that's what's happening. Let's get the skinny on it. The president of the North Shore Cricket Club is G. Jahar. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. Bit of an odd story for someone coming into it, but uh, maybe we can back this up and explain uh, how this came to light.
5: Oh, well, um, I'll try to. It's a long story, but let's be short and brief here. But what really happened here is that what looks like at the outset is a case which is um, filed by us to basically protect our name. Uh, Basically, it's it's a group of individuals in Surrey uh, who have basically never played cricket, uh, who have basically don't even have a team, let alone a home ground or a field. And they are not even a member of any cricket organization in the province. So basically, this was, um, this was a well-planned conspiracy, so to say, uh, which was uh, targeted at us to harm us. Uh, So this was kind of an operation of our voice. You know, we've been advocating for better sports administration, especially for cricket, for quite a while now. And so this was a well-crafted conspiracy, which was very well legally crafted, because what we believe is that at the back end of this uh, conspiracy, the main conspirators were actually lawyers. And um, so the the, the only way they thought... Uh, they could silence our voice for all the issues that we're raising was to take our name away and, you know, put our legacy to, uh, you know, and kind of snatch away our 102-year-old legacy. So that's how this case all started.
0: Now, we should stress that none of these allegations have been tested yet in court. So we're still waiting on that. But uh, what has the organization that governs this, uh, Cricket BC, had to say?
5: Uh, well, obviously they have not commented on any of the issues, and they have not let known their position on this. But um, they are well aware of that. I mean, there's hardly anybody in BC who doesn't know North Shore Cricket Club. Um, practically every playing, uh, you know, every cricketer. So we have more than 4,000 players in the province, and I would say each and every club knows who we are. But unfortunately, they have not supported us, us in this cause. Uh, in any way whatsoever. I mean, they could have put an end to this nonsense, you know, the, the day they knew about it. But they have chosen to have a kind of, uh, you know, uh, I would say a silent stand on this issue.
0: You've mentioned that the North Shore uh, Cricket Club is very well known in the province and has a 102-year-old history. What is the reputation of the club?
5: mean, uh, really we have a very good impeccable reputation in the league. Um, a club which uh, supports a lot of diversity and a club which stands for inclusiveness, uh, because we feel that cricket is a sport, you know, where um, you know people make lasting memories, friendships. It's a good platform for networking. It's a good platform for kids to stay off, you know, you know, dedicate their time to the sport and rather not indulge in, you know, things like drugs and alcohol. So, not as in North Shore, we have been, you know, very synonymous with. Uh, a platform of good, uh, you know, inclusiveness and equality.
0: Now, why would any club, let alone one in Syria, be interested in taking over your name? Um, Is it because of the reputation?
5: Well, it definitely is about the reputation, but the real root cause of this conspiracy was because, like I said, our club has been standing up for a lot of oppression that has been happening by the cricket administrators in our community. And we've been part of a lawsuit where, you know, recently in Canada, we saw the arrival of the world's largest T20 cricket league called the LMS, which, which is like last Man Stands, which is a beautiful, newer, faster format of cricket. And we've been very supportive of that format. So, and the league, the, which is the British Columbia Mainland Cricket League, actually banned the players from participating in this league. And this league had no conflict with the existing league, the LMS, with the British Columbia Mainland Cricket League because this league happens on weekdays and the league predominantly happens on weekends. So this was more cricket for us. This was good news. We entered two teams into this league, but the league actually issued an order to ban players from participating in the other league. So meaning thereby we could not play both cricket. And this matter ended up in court. And it is still, you know, it's uh, it's, uh, it's sub judice, but this was the gift we were given for raising our voice. So the gift was that uh, the league and um, you know the the people, the main conspirators, uh, they you know made a conspiracy to you know this was a vindictive action, an action to tell us that you better shut up or you will be thrown out. So you know you... this was so this was that if you if you if you don't um, stop raising a voice against us or, or you file a, a lawsuit against us, we will make sure that you don't even exist anymore.
0: We're talking with G. Jahar, who is the president of the North Shore Cricket Club, about another club in Surrey. Uh, and this is stated in the filing in courts. None of this has been proven in court. But uh, another um, club is taking over the name of the North Shore Cricket Club uh you know, I've got to wonder how something like cricket becomes so political. Am I, as an outsider, naive to think that this should just be recreation?
5: Uh, well, uh, cricket is uh, has a big recreation component, but there is also a very very competitive component also. Very few people in in Canada today are aware that cricket is, is a f- the fastest growing sport in the country right now and what is happening at the international scenario is that after a very long gap almost a nine year gap uh, the canadian cricket team has managed to get their odi status now what basically that means is that uh, like uh, like in like in soccer you have FINA. so in cricket we have icc one of the richest body sports in the world so getting that odi status which is called you know uh, international one day cricket status is that now Canadian cricket is is going to grow by leaps and bounds. So when when and then we have an, like you know like you have the NHL and you know so for cricket now we have a new um, uh, Premier League kind of a thing called the Global T Twenty. So a lot of Canada is getting a lot of uh, you know attention. The sport is growing, and as a result of it, a lot of funding is coming into the country. So the funding mostly coming from our international body, which is the ICC. And when all these things are happening, there are a lot of people at grassroots who unfortunately are not there to improve the sport, but are there to gain control. So their idea is not, they're not coming from the true value of being a good volunteer, which is to serve selflessly and, you know, do, you know, see the sport grow. You know, we see smiles on faces of the children, and, you know, in, you know, grow and foster the sport. But unfortunately, there are people who fancy, you know, control. So a control, you know, maniac, so to say, or you know, uh, are so hungry for control that they will go to any extent to, you know, gain control of the bodies which run the cricket. So this is basically a, at the root cause of all these problems are basically people who are, are determined to just gain control by hook or crook.
0: Okay, if we were to take out all the words and uh, take out the court action, Bhavjeet, is there any hope that away from the courts there can be some resolution? Can uh, you sit down with uh, the other side in this, so to speak, and come to some sort of agreement and uh, let's all be friends? Is that possible? Well, that's what the spirit of the sport says. and We've tried it so much.
5: we've, We've tried all options. You know, court is a very extremely expensive process. We are not a very wealthy club, you know. It was only because of some kindness of some lawyers, you know, who basically did a lot of pro bono work for us and, you know, minimum fee that we could even come to the court. You know, today going to a court is, oh, my God, it's a, it's a very expensive process and a very tedious process. Sure is. A time good. So we this is not something that we are enjoying. So, yeah, if there was a resolution – uh, we would certainly look into it, but you know, um, taking somebody's name and you know pretending to be North Shore Cricket Club when you are actually some proxies living in Surrey who have nothing to do with cricket. So this is, this
0: has gone beyond that. Okay, so yeah. it's going to play out in court. Uh, none of this, of course, has been proven in court at this point. But Bob Jeet, uh, thank you so much for spending time with us and bringing us up to date from your court filing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having. Me.